Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. Hey, I am just so glad you could join me for this conversation today. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly, and today's conversation revolves around identifying anxiety in our children and then what we can do to coach them through it. I'm joined in today's conversation by author and counselor Sissy Goth. And Sissy is the Director of Child and Adolescent Counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries. And she is just a wealth of information when it comes to helping our kids through some of the mental health and emotional challenges that they might be facing. If you're enjoying the podcast, would you take a moment and leave a ranking or a review wherever it is that you listen to this podcast? It helps other women to find our community and just let them know that there's a place that they belong. Also, down in the show notes, if you are new to the podcast, you'll notice a link to a quiz. It's called What's Your Loneliness Type? Loneliness is something that all of us single moms have to deal with, but the reasons why we deal with loneliness are different, and they don't necessarily have that much to do with whether or not we're in a relationship. So if you'd like to learn more about your own experience with loneliness, what's causing it, and then some of the ways out, go ahead and click on that link or head over to agapemoms.com forward slash quiz. I've talked here on the podcast before about my own journey through dealing with anxiety. And something I love about Sissy and her perspective is not only how it's helped me to understand it in my children, but understand it in myself so that we're actually on a side-by-side healing journey together. Here is my conversation with Sissy Goth. Sissy, I'm excited to have you with me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so honored to get to be with you. Now, I'd like to start us off with kind of a mindset shift when it comes to anxiety. I think a lot of us moms will see our kids going through an anxious episode and we're not really sure what to do. And in your book, Raising Worry-Free Girls, you mentioned that the goal for us is not to cure anxiety, but rather to manage it. Can you help us understand the distinction and how that looks in our parenting? Yes. Well, so anxiety, I mean, I think the root of that is because anxiety is more based on temperament and and partly genetics. But every child I've ever met, every teenager, every parent I've ever met who's anxious has a few things in common. And that is they are typically really kind they try really hard. They care really deeply. They're really bright as individuals. And, and so with all of that, I always say to kids, it's like, it's hard to turn the volume knob down. You know, we just pick up on everything. We're aware of so many things. And so we're not ever going to change that about our temperament, about who God made us to be. And so I think it's more about harnessing that energy mm-hmm. and using it for good rather than being tripped up by it for us and for the kids we love. 
And I can totally see that as I've just journeyed myself through anxiety. I've watched my kids go through this, that, that gift of attunement that makes you very aware of the world also can make you very fearful of it. And so often though, Sissy, we think that anxiety looks only like worry. We think that it's Mm -hmm. going to come out as worried thoughts. And certainly that's part of it. As it relates to watching our kids go through this though, are there other ways that anxiety shows up that might help us to understand what's going on under the surface? Definitely. And it's so tricky with kids. I mean, for us as adults, sometimes we don't know what's happening with us as anxiety, but I think especially for them, when they don't have words sometimes to describe the emotions, they don't have the understanding to know what's going on with them. I, I talk about it in the book, like there's this continuum of exploders and imploders mm-hmm. and that all kids kind of fall somewhere along those lines. And again, all of this is true for us too. But I think the exploders were going to often see evidence of it more, but it will typically come out as anger, especially little ones Mm -hmm. who can't say, when you change my schedule at the last minute, it makes me feel anxious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, they just, you pick them up from school and you say, you thought we were doing this today, but actually our schedule changed and we're going to have to do this and this and this. And all of a sudden they just totally melt down or you tell them it's time to put up a certain game or they've got to go brush their teeth right now and they explode. And, and again, so much of that is because they just don't have the language to put to what's going on with them. And, and so often I will sit with parents and they will talk about kids being explosive, kids being angry, kids being demanding, manipulative which is what it feels like when we're looking at the behavior. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we know all behavior is communication. So there's something at the root of that that's really the issue rather than the issue itself. And, and we gravitate sometimes towards the issue. And so digging underneath and noticing are there patterns in your child's behavior when they're exploding what is it that's going on? I think that can lead us to understanding if it's more anxiety-based. But then there are imploders that are more perfectionists. So they're not the ones who are saying, oh, no, I think there's a storm coming and they're looping in their anxiety. They're just really angry with themselves. And sometimes they go really inward. And those kids often are the ones where you go to the parent-teacher conference and the teacher says, I wish every child in my class was like your child. Mm -hmm. And And that is not the child you see evidence of it sometimes at home. But those kids are trying so hard to please their teachers and perform well that they've kind of stored it all up for home and they're Mm -hmm. out of the resources that are enabling them to do that. And so those kids often, I mean, I think they do explode sometimes at home, but they more implode. And so it's going to cave on themselves and Mm -hmm. their anger at you even is more about being angry with themselves. Mm -hmm. And so those things can make it look different. And, And often the imploders, We won't even see evidence of it, but what they'll do is they'll have recurring tummy aches or recurring headaches, or you'll see them gravitate towards their room a lot more if they're older because they don't know, again, how to put words to it, but they're being really hard on themselves and having such high expectations. Mm -hmm. And that's anxiety at its root rather than just wanting to please you. I mean, it it becomes anxious space rather than just adaptive and in a coming from a good place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you see any distinction more or less between boys and girls along these lines? So girls are twice as likely to deal with worry and anxiety, which is why I called the book Raising Worry-Free Girls. Although if David Thomas were here, he would say the same rules apply for boys. We're doing the exact same thing in our offices for boys. But girls... It's so interesting statistically because they're twice as likely, but boys are actually taken to get help more. Mm. 
And I think it's so often because of what we're talking about that girls who are anxious often fly below the radar and they're we're actually reinforcing the anxiety behavior because you know often it's the firstborn it is the kids who are trying so hard to get it right but again it's from an anxious place rather than a healthy place mm-hmm. and so that anxiety we're saying thank you so much for being so kind or thank you for trying so hard or you're doing so great in school. And obviously we want to reinforce positive behavior, but we also want to help them understand that's not expected of them. And our love is not conditional on their performance. And often perfectionistic kids can attach those two things. Mm, I can definitely see that from my own experience. I was one of those firstborn, very classic people pleaser, overachievers. And every time you get an attaboy for doing something well, it just keeps that cycle going. And it's because it's very socially acceptable to be high achieving. And so it doesn't appear that there's anything really wrong going on there. And on the converse, I think so often though, as we talked with David Thomas, that boys are less verbal And so they may be then more inclined to have these outbursts or have disruptive behavior in the classroom. And because it is having these negative effects on them socially and in that educational environment that will take them to the counselor or will get the medication or whatever it is, because we can see that there's an obvious problem. Yes, because even the teachers will say that, whereas the teachers often miss what's going on with girls, whether it's anxiety or I end up in a lot of battles with teachers overthinking girls sometimes have ADHD because girls can contain it because they want so much to please their teachers so they can maintain during the day. Mm -hmm. And then again, we see evidence of it at home. Mm -hmm. Sissy, what are the things you mentioned a little bit about temperament and you mentioned that there's some genetic component in here. What are the factors that really go into a child experiencing anxiety? Because I think given our situation as single moms, we put a lot of blame on ourselves that the reason our kids might be dealing with these things is because of the circumstances. You know, I I mean, I do think anxiety can be related to trauma, but at this point, and I have been counseling kids since 1993, so almost 30 years of counseling kids. And I would say, it is way more about birth order. I mean, at this point, if I see a family whose oldest child is a daughter, I think, okay, we need to be prepared for some anxiety Mm -hmm. along the way and Mm -hmm. do some things preventatively. So, I mean, at this point in time, I think if a family has a firstborn who's a girl, I just think, okay, we need to be prepared preventatively for some anxiety to come along the way. So I do think that is so much of a factor. And genetically, If as a parent, you have anxiety, your kids are seven times more likely to deal with it themselves. And I mean, circumstances can lend themselves to creating that or factoring in to contribute to it. But I mean, that can be difficult things they go through at school that can be lost in any way in their life. And so I certainly would not want single moms to feel more shame or more responsibility for it because kids are going to encounter hard things along the way. And I do not see any more significant factors of anxiety in kids who come from divorce than other kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think along the way, we all have knocks at this point. And, And in fact, and we could talk about this, but I think kids who come from divorce sometimes are some of the most resilient kids I know. Mm -hmm. And sometimes anxious kids have never had any hard things going on. Mm -hmm. And so which part of that is, I think parenting is a big piece of anxiety in kids today. And 
what happens, what is happening, I think, culturally is I feel like we are kind of, I talked to somebody who said this recently, and I thought it was so brilliant. She said, we are really, you are, I'm a little older than you and not in this generation, probably, but really the first generation of healthy parents. I mean, I I think Mm -hmm. pursuing health, I should say, never, Mm -hmm. none of us fully get there this side of heaven, but, but I think pursuing health in a different way than any generation that's before you. And so out of that, there's a whole lot of trying to understand, trying to correct maybe things that our parents missed along Mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. But what I'm seeing is parents who are overcompensating. And so being so attuned as the word you said before, being so attuned to anxiety that we're in fact paying more attention to anxiety than resourcefulness. Mm. And whatever we pay the most attention to is what's most reinforced. And so understanding them, stepping in emotionally when they're struggling, but then that whole adage of rub some dirt in it, let's keep going, that really created a lot of resourcefulness in kids. Mm -hmm. And so we want to do both. We want to be really listening and hearing them and being empathetic and moving towards, you've got this, you can do it, you're capable. Because when we spend too much time in the empathy, they just connect with us in that and they don't believe, they believe their feelings are more important than moving forward. Mm. And life becomes all about what they feel. And obviously as a therapist, I think feelings are important, but I think we want that combination of feelings and action and believing they're capable. So That's kind of complicated, but I often am seeing anxious parents who are doing more, more attuning and then more rescuing Mm -hmm. than teaching resourcefulness. So I think that's a part of it for sure. I think that's so important what you just said, though, that it takes both, that we have to have the ability to be warm and compassionate and understanding and be a safe base for our kids. But we cannot shield them from every last thing that's going to happen so that they don't learn to rely on a sense of resiliency that God would develop in them through those difficult things. And I think, as you said, with our situations as single moms, we want to overcompensate. We want to fix what got broken. And we don't want our kids to have the collateral damage of that experience. Yet, it's the reality. And there can be, as you said, so much good that can come from that. We will definitely dive into that. But I want to stay a little more on this concept of parenting and how we are actually hurting our kids. So can you give some descriptions, some examples of things that you see parents doing that is that rescuing and overcompensating and is making anxiety worse? Yes. And actually, I've had this happen a couple of times. This exact same story has happened a couple of times in my office. And I think it's such a picture of it. I had a little girl who came to see me for anxiety, and I knew that's why she was there. And I came down stairs to get her in the lobby, and she smiled at me. And I walked over and said, hey, I'm Sissy. I'm so excited you're at Daystar. I want to give you a tour of the Daystar house. And then I'm going to take you upstairs and introduce you to my little dog, Lucy, who works with me every day. And um, and we'll talk to her. And then I'm going to meet with your mom and dad in a few minutes. And this little girl got up to follow me. And her mom stopped her and said, do you feel comfortable with that? Hmm. And it had never occurred to her not to feel comfortable with it until her mom asked that question. And again, empathizing, attuning, but obviously she's in counseling. It's a safe place. And so I think her mom could have even said, Hey, I know you've never met Sissy, but obviously that we're here. We feel like she's safe and you're going to have a ball getting to talk to her, have fun and waved her away. You know, 
and and I think that's the piece of it. And again, part of it, it's so based on our own experience. And I think the extreme of wanting to understand or feeling like I'm going to throw them into the deep end, we might have been thrown into the deep end, but with no coping strategies mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And so it's why in the book, and I wrote a book for parents, I wrote a book for elementary age girls and one for teenage girls. Because I broke it down into understanding is where we start with emotionally connecting, then help. And I think we've got to have that practical help. We've got to instill some really, give them really good tools to work through it and then hope. And that's where we always want to land with kids. But I think even for parents who feel anxious to know, okay, my child is going into this anxiety producing situation, but she's got all the tools she needs. And so Mm -hmm. I know she's capable. She can do it. And and the intention of writing those books was, I mean, I jokingly said to kind of keep folks out of my counseling office or other Mm -hmm. counselor's office, because there are such practical things you can do at home. But I think that's what happens is we think, and and I talk in the book about that we often either are overcompensating or undercompensating. You know, mm-hmm. we swing one direction or the other. And I think it's because we don't believe they're capable mm-hmm. or we're afraid of the world. And in either of those situations, we end up controlling them, trying to control the environment. And and in the books, all of them, I came up with this definition because I did a whole lot of research of anxieties and overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of themselves. And so when we are stepping in and rescuing them, or even just trying to pad the walls and protect them, we're basically saying, yep, that's exactly right. It's too big. You're too small. You can't do it. And that's never, ever the message we would want to be giving them. It's totally subconscious. But it's what we're communicating. And so instead, again, to give them some tools and to just have as a mantra that comes out of our mouth all the time, you can do it. You can do hard things. You are so strong. You're so resilient. You're so capable. You've got this. That's what we want them to hear over and over and over from us. When it comes to that tendency to undercompensate or overcompensate, I can see where that's a little bit of our personality, but can also be some of how we were parented. And many of us may be aware that we want to correct that, but we're not really sure how. And I think what we're kind of circling around here is this idea of knowing when to push and when to pull back, that we're doing one of those things too much. (laughs) Yes, exactly. how can we navigate that though? If we're not really sure what healthy parenting is supposed to look like and we want to do something differently, how do we negotiate the line there? I think it would be great to think about probably where you land with that. Do you lean towards overcompensating or undercompensating and undercompensating or underattending maybe is a better way to say that mm-hmm. overattending or underattending. Um, but I think underattenders are probably classic type A personality types. Um, definitely one of those one on the Enneagram of any of your Enneagram people. And, you know, we are so productive. We're moving so fast Mm. that often we just don't have a lot of time for the emotions and especially the emotions that feel bigger than the situation where it's, you know, Mm. drama, we don't do drama very well. Uh And so I think we can end up minimizing kids feelings. And so they get bigger just to get us to hear them. Mm. And so that's where we just want to be aware and have some kind of checks inside of ourselves. And even as you're listening to think about talking to a friend about it, you know, is there somebody you can bounce that off of and say, okay, if you had to guess if I was an over or under which, 
way do you think I would lean? Or it's where I do love personality studies, different things that help us understand ourselves. I actually am just, I haven't even said this out loud, but I'm working on the beginnings of a book that's kind of more about us mm-hmm. as grownups and, and often as parents and how our past impacts who we are and mm-hmm. how that in turn impacts, you know, kind of the past impacts the present, the present impacts the future. Yes. And so what does that look like for us? But I think really in all things, I mean, not just anxiety, but across the board, I think one of the best gifts we can give the kids we love is to do our own work mm-hmm. and to be aware of our own stuff and how it comes up. And and over-attending and under-attending both are often more about us and what we feel like we missed mm. than what what our kids really need. And so just to ask some of those harder questions, I think is really important and to pay attention to in moments what's kind of rising up and mm. is that fear-based or is it out of a sense of trust and who God is and who he made your kids to be? And what they're capable of, you know, I think are important questions to ask. I think that's so poignant what you just said that so often what we're doing is about what we needed or what we missed, that we're not even doing what we're doing out of our kids' actual need. I have definitely seen that pattern in myself. And Mm. as I continued to work through though anxiety and seeing the places where I made progress, but the places where I was missing it. That learning to reparent and reattune to myself gave mm. me the confidence of flipping that around to my kids and seeing Absolutely. them in ways because I, I am. I love that you're doing that. That is so <laughs> awesome and such a gift to your kids. It is. And it's one of those things that I classically fall in that under attender mm. sort of bucket and have a lot of sense that my kids can do it. And so it's this historical pattern in my family of saying, no, you can do this. You can do this and not giving them the the coping tools. And so what that has looked like is giving that encouragement still, but spending that time to teach the coping skills. And sometimes that is modeling it through that compassion and through those pauses throughout the day and that attention that many of us have just learned to kind of get by without. But when we turn that to ourselves first, we allow God to attune to us. Like we're attuned to his attunement of us and we receive that. Then we have the ability to pass that on to our kids. And that is where this healing legacy can move through the generations. I just love that. So poignant what you said. Yes. I'd like to take a short break from our conversation to mention our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is Christian counseling that is available on the go, and it works through an app where you are able to schedule video sessions or just chat with your counselor throughout the course of the week. And I found that having the combination of Christian teaching and counseling together was so encouraging and so healing for me. If you have been considering Christian counseling and you would like to give Faithful Counseling a try, you can get 10% off of your first month by going to getfaithful.com forward slash single mom. As our kids are going through these experiences though, Sissy, sometimes it's overwhelming for us, especially if we are in that Reattunement process. If we're trying to figure this all out for ourselves and for them. And as they are dealing with these big emotions, sometimes this thing is starting to escalate and we do not know where we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do, and how we can kind of get the thing contained. So you mentioned though that there are 
stages of progression for anxiety Mm -hmm. and that the coping strategies will differ depending on where our kids are at. Can you help us to understand what those stages look like and what we might need to do differently as this thing progresses? Well, I mean, I, I think preventatively is something I would always think about doing because, you know, anxiety it really impacts our bodies. And part of what happens, and and you're a lot of you all are probably familiar as you're listening, but you know, we have different regions of our brains, obviously, that are responsible for different things. And the prefrontal cortex is responsible for thinking rationally and managing our emotions. And it's also responsible for focus, which I think is really fascinating because I think it's part of where we get distracted sometimes as grownups when we're anxious. And then the whole thing goes haywire because we can't focus on our kids and be into, you know, that's a big part of it. But, but I think that thinking rationally and manage our emotions for kids is so significant because what happens when any of us get anxious is the blood vessels in our brain constrict sends the blood flow back to the amygdala, which are these two almond shaped regions of our brain that really dictate fight or flight. And when we're functioning out of our amygdala, it is all about reaction the amygdala don't even think. And so, and the part of our brain that does has lost blood flow. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, it's just gone offline. And Mm -hmm. so if we're trying to in that moment, say you need to calm down or you, I mean, if they're angry out of their anxiety, you need to go to your room or I don't even understand why you're worried about that. None of that's helpful. Mm -hmm. They're not going to get anywhere productive in that moment. And so until we can calm their body back down, we're not going to get anywhere. And so that's why, and David probably talked about it too, but that's why we're such big proponents of deep breathing Mm. because that breathing dilates the blood vessels of the brain and it shifts the blood flow right back to the prefrontal cortex. Mm. And so having them take some deep breaths, teaching them some practical ways to do that, I think is really one of the best things we can do with kids. And I think that's where preventatively, when we're in the car sometimes with our kids that we do some deep breathing at have a sister who has a two and a half year old who I'm crazy about. And I'm so impressed with how often she and my brother-in-law will just say, Henry, take some deep breaths at two and a half, you know, when he's getting really worked up Mm. because that's already helping him learn to do that as a skill. And, and what happens that I think is really fascinating too, is the more the amygdala takes over, the more likely it is to take over. It actually enlarges and develops kind of a hair trigger response. And so when we are preventatively taking deep breaths and teaching kids that kind of thing, we're changing the structure of their brain in a way that is really important. And so, I mean, I think even as a therapist, when I first started hearing about deep breathing, I was like, oh, come on, all this mindfulness (laughs) stuff. But it really is so important. And so, you know, if a child is progressing in the moment from an anxious place, I think I would start with, okay, let's take some deep breaths. I'm going to take them with you. And whether it's square breathing and they're drawing on their leg, you know, that's such an important tool because it's a grounding exercise too. that Mm -hmm. tactile sense of uh, drawing on their leg. But I think sometimes the train's already left the station and breathing is not going to help them. And so for those kids to say, okay, we're going to go run up and down the stairs three times, or I need you to go run a lap around the house or do five jumping jacks or something where they can move and get some of the pent up energy out. Then they can take some deep breaths. Then we can get to a more practical place. So that is always my first 
thing with kids that I have them do when they're progressing. The second would be grounding techniques. These are kind of my top. This is my first three months of counseling, probably your first three sessions <laughs> of counseling in my office. Then I would teach them grounding techniques because what happens is, you know, for any of us who are anxious, we are no longer in the present moment. We're either mm-hmm. in the past or the future and we've kind of spun off. Mm-hmm. And so grounding really is a cognitive behavioral therapy technique that kind of grabs them by the ankles and pulls them back to the ground. And so my favorites are five, four, three, two, one, which is like all sensory related because anything sensory, you know, you really have to be in the present moment. So five things you hear, four things you see, three things you feel, two things you taste, one thing you smell or any order, it doesn't matter. Or I'll have them do math games with older kids. I'll have them count backwards from a hundred by sevens. Cause that's hard for any of us, you know, just anything that requires focus in that mm-hmm. moment. So I will have them do the breathing do some kind of grounding technique. And then I'll have them really talk back to the worry. And I love for kids to come up with a name for their worry. So the worry monster with older kids, I call it the worry whisperer. But anytime we can name something, it reduces its power. And, you know, we all, I think, especially like you said, when we're kind of retroactively having some awareness, you know, we're learning that the voice in our head is not true. Mm-hmm. But we think it is until yes. we hear differently. Mm-hmm. And so for kids to start to teach them that early and name that voice, you know, I, I have kids who call it, I have one girl who named her worry monster, Bob. I have no idea where she came up with <laughs> Bob, but that's a great name. Or, you know, another girl who called her Princess Worry and she can boss back Princess Worry because she's the queen in her mind is what she said. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, boys who will call theirs the Hulk, whatever it is, the name they come up with, then they can say, Bob, you're not the boss of me. I'm not going to listen to you. You don't have any authority over me. You know, it's the same thing that we're doing with that voice, hopefully in our own head. And then, you know, as again, preventatively, we can role play with them. What do you want to say back? You know, you're going in, you're about to start school for the first time, potentially in a long time. So what do you think might be things you would worry about? Now, what are you going to do to handle your worry? Because when we ask questions, we're giving them the tools we're reminding them just by asking that we believe they're capable. Mm -hmm. And so those really are my first three go-to as it's progressing up the stages, down the stages, whichever direction. I love the understanding of the brain science with this too, because I think it helps us to look at our kids differently and not focus so hard on the behavior and not take the behavior personally that we can really recognize in our child's just expression and acting out, wow, they're thinking part of their brain is fully offline right now. It's my job to teach them how to get it back online. It's my job to coach them into this. But I love this too, because I think it allows us to be more aware of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And when I'm feeling anxious, I can figure out like, do I need a sensory (laughs) grounding? Yes. Yes. Even kicking my shoes off and standing in the grass and just listening to what's going on, taking those deep breaths and We have such an ability to switch out of one part of our brain to another if we just know what the tricks are for us and just recognize that there is such a mental process that's going on here that we can work through. And whether that's for us or for our kids, that when we get those tricks on board and we can just have our go-tos, that this process can be much easier to manage. I love that you said that because one of the things kids have a really hard time doing is, I mean... 
anxiety and flexibility kind of have an inverse relationship. And so they don't switch mm-hmm. gears easily when they're anxious. And and we have learned inherently as we get older, we learn ways to pause and mm-hmm. shift. And often we don't give them the chance to pause and shift. Mm. We just expect them to turn on a dime, whether it's action, like their activity, or whether it's just internally, we expect them to turn on a dime. And so helping them learn those things that help them pause and kind of regroup and move to the next that are often those sensory grounding techniques. I think that's such an Mm. important skill. I love that you brought that up. Let's dig into that part a little more because our kids, especially the ones who are in divorce scenarios and they're going back and forth, experience transition a lot. And when it comes to those regular transitions, it doesn't necessarily mean that they get a whole lot easier and we can have seasons actually where they're harder. So Mm -hmm. are there things that we could do preemptively in those instances or that we can have a game plan for when that would rise up when a transition is about to occur? Well, I... I mean, as long as I have been counseling kids, I have heard parents in divorce situations say reentry is hard. And so I think some of it is probably adjusting expectations Mm -hmm. to know that it's going to take them a little time to come back down, especially if you have different rules in different households. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of what makes it that much harder. And so just knowing they're going to need a little time and space to do that is really important. And I would say, I think anytime kids between houses can have transition objects, I mean, I think I'm a strong believer that they need hair dryers at both homes and Mm -hmm. they need clothes at both. You know, they need, it needs to feel fully like home at each house. Mm -hmm. But I think stuffed animals, they can take back and forth. I had a family who, I've had a couple of families over the years who've let their dog be a transition object, that the dog gets to go back and forth, Mm -hmm. especially for only children, because Kids with siblings have a sibling that's a transition object with Mm. them, but only children don't. And I think that's really hard on them sometimes. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a lot to ask to have a dog that you share (laughs) with an ex-spouse. But but I think anything that we can have that helps them anchor in both places, I think that lessens some of the anxiety of going back and forth. But I think naming it too, you know, like this is just going to be hard when you come in and when you go out and that's okay. And, and I want you to be able to say that out loud to me today. Like mm-hmm. I miss dad when I get back sometimes. And that I think kids, especially in divorced homes and probably especially with moms can start to be really in tune to what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And so some of those things, they don't feel like it's okay to say that out loud, that it's going to hurt you. And so they're not going to name those emotions and then it's going to get stuffed inside of them and come out sideways. Mm-hmm. And so for you to even sometimes go before them and say, I know you miss your dad right now. And that's okay. I'm so happy you love your dad that much. My parents are divorced and they divorced. I have a had a really interesting family dynamic where I was an only child till I was 16. And then they had a, another little girl, mm. which was quite a shocker. You can imagine. But <laughs> when she was six and I was 22, our parents got divorced and it was a very hard divorce on my mom. And she would not have picked to co-parent with my dad mm. <laughs> after just the way things fell out. But she did this phenomenal job of saying always, your dad loves you. You are so important to him. Yes, you're going to go back to his house. It's okay that you miss him. And and she even did things like, you're not going to talk bad about your dad to me. I mean, just 
she just did a phenomenal job of being, I think, the strongest one mm-hmm. so that my sister could say things and struggle and and even say, you know, I remember at one point she said, I'm going to move to dad's and mom was like, okay, I'll help you pack your bag. And she never <laughs> said it again. But But I think, you know, just them knowing that you're strong enough to take some mm-hmm. of those emotions that are inevitably going to happen, I think can help a ton in that situation. And to know that there's just going to be some anxiety around the transitions, I think is really important. And to give them the skills, you know, and to do things like, hey, if you want to go in your room and draw for a little bit, if you want to go jump on the mini tramp for a little bit or go outside and jump on the trampoline or a high school kid that comes home, do you, if you want to go run for a little bit, we can put off whatever it is we were going to do. It's probably smart to not have an activity as soon as they get home, but Mm -hmm. to give them a little transition time, I think can be helpful. And you know, give them transition time and then have something that they're looking forward to. You know, those two things kind of back to back to pull them out of it, I think can be really helpful. I think it's important for us too to recognize that each of our kids will have a different pattern that some may feel really withdrawn when they come home and may even feel like they need space and not overwhelm them right away with, hey, how was your weekend? Or, you know, a lot of banter. We may have other ones that have delay And so they may be really excited when they come in the door and the next day have all of this melting down. And it's just recognizing where does the child fall in? How are they handling their overwhelm basically? And just being that steady presence that you can ask a child, Hey, do you miss your dad? And if they, you know, respond and they warm up to you that that's what they needed. And you could ask and they could be like, no, (laughs) it's like, okay, okay, okay. I'm just going to disengage. I'm here if you need me. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So smart, but it's hard to know. Sometimes you're going to have a little bit of bobble in here and there until you figure it out and they may change from season to season. But I think when we do, as you said, adjust those expectations and even expectations for ourselves, we may not get this thing fully right. But as we're walking with God in these things, He'll show us what each individual child needs and give us the confidence that when we step into the ring with them, that they're actually going to see that they have the ability to do this thing for themselves. And that was something you talked about just a few minutes ago about how though our kids are walking through these shattered expectations, that there's actually a lot of hope and resilience that can come out of these things. Would you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I remember... Years ago, I spoke at a seminar that was just for single parents. And I sometimes when any of us at Daystar speak locally, we'll take kids to do a Q&A at the end because it's so cool to hear from kids directly. And I took, I think, five kids whose parents were divorced and had gotten divorced at all different ages. And I can't remember what one of the audience members asked, but something about how are you different as a result of your parents' divorce? And It was amazing. I mean, I remember standing there so teary hearing these kids answer the question that every single one of them said, I'm stronger than I would have been if I hadn't been through this. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so true. And you may not see it. There may be more anxiety in the short term. There definitely will be regression with a lot of kids. I mean, there are things like that that you're going to see, but long term. And let me say, these kids were all juniors and seniors in high school. I always take juniors and seniors mm-hmm. for Q&A because they're the ones that give the most hope. Mm-hmm. You don't get it a lot before that. But yeah. but I think um, developmentally, they could see like I, that really is a part of who I am becoming and have already become because of what I've been through. And I think it's part of the fact that we 
have a God who redeems all things. Mm. You know, divorce is definitely part of that. It is not excluded ever. Mm. And so seeing those kids just put words to the fact that they felt stronger, I think is, is what I've seen evidence of a million times over the years. And, and really pre-pandemic, when I wrote Raising Worry-Free Girls, one of the things I talked about is how I felt like we were living with this generation of kids who didn't have resilience because collectively they had never been through anything hard. Mm-hmm. And so when the hard things came, they felt like my world's falling apart. Like I can't handle this. I can't do it because they hadn't had as many little disruptions along the way or bigger disruptions. And you know, now obviously we've all been through a pandemic. And so Mm -hmm. I have been feeling like generationally, the kids that are growing up right now are going to be stronger than kids 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think kids who are divorced have that sense of, you know, I mean, the verse I anchor that book around is John 16, 33 of in this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world and kids who hadn't faced trouble, didn't understand how to do that, what that even meant. Mm -hmm. But Kids who've been through divorce get it in a really different way. I absolutely see in my own life where the lack of struggle is what caused anxiety to spiral out of control. Mm. And I even look at the millennial generation, for example, there were no major wars during the time that the millennials were growing up. There were no economic crises. By the time that the bubble bursts, we were already far out into adulthood. And so for myself growing up in kind of this, family bubble, it was a fear of when is that other shoe going to drop? When is something going to come? Because it can't always stay this good forever. And not having struggle, then there's no opportunity to explore what you have inside of you that Mm, you can... such a great statement. That you can grow in, that God has placed Mm -hmm. certain characteristics in you, but also a faith for you to grow into as you walk with Him. And Mm -hmm. we have to have struggle in order for that to happen. And though we would love that our kids not have to go through some of the things that they're going through. And some families or some women who are listening who are like, this thing is horrible. I would never wish this on my enemy. And, but it is to say that that does not necessarily mean that our kids are less equipped for life. It actually can mean that they're more equipped. And I tell my oldest two that all of the time, not my youngest one, because she's a toddler, but (laughs) I will tell her too, but my oldest two all of the time, you are so much stronger than I was at this age. You are so much more compassionate. You are so much more in tuned to what people are going through. You are so much more equipped to teach other people, even your own age, how to walk through these things because of what you have gone through. And I I can see how that just bolsters their little spirits of like, okay, this thing isn't going to crush me. And yes, we have those. Absolutely. We have lots of moments and I appreciate where having that perspective on the long game, as you said, is so much, it makes it so much easier to walk through the days to the day to day, because when the day to day is heavy, Mm. we have to know that all of these things pulled together can mean something good for our kids down the road. Mm. And it's in, in that moment though, we just have to have faith that that's how you say this thing works out. God, <laughs> You say right. that you turn exactly. these things for good. It just yes. might take some time for us to see the fruit of that. Right. Yes. For our kids, Sissy, who are going through these things though, maybe we're practicing some of these techniques with them. We're teaching them how to manage this thing on their own. They may find themselves in, in themselves in contexts without us. 
mm-hmm. where they're going to need to rely on these things. They might be in a classroom. They may be with a parent who's not doing these things with them. How can we best equip those kids in those situations to navigate that process? Well, that's where I love that you used the word coaching earlier because a coach is not on the ball field kicking the ball. Yeah, A coach is standing on the sidelines. And I think even if we're always the one saying, now it's time to take deep breaths, you know, what do you want to say back? I mean, I think we start off teaching and we start off telling them what to do. Then we move towards asking them what they think they should do. You know, really specifically, is this a time you think it'd be good to take deep breaths? What do you want to say back? What grounding techniques do you want to use? What do you want to say back to your worry monster? Mm. And then we move back towards what do you think would help right now? You know, that the questions get bigger and more vague so that they really are connecting the dots. Because if we keep connecting the dots for them, they won't learn to do it. Mm, And so so that to me is the biggest piece of it that we just are fading into the background more and more and more. And then two, that we're really reinforcing them when they get home. Tell me what you did. What tools did you use? And if they say none, well, how did that go? Mm-hmm. Because often anxious kids too are, they are lazy is not the right word, but a little in using, I mean, I cannot tell you how often mm-hmm. families have come back in to see me and say, none of the tools work. Well, the kids tried them once and didn't mm-hmm. get any payoff. It didn't mm-hmm. change anything. And so they give up. Whereas it really is a long haul change. I mean, we're creating new neural pathways in their brain. It takes time. And so to be able to, you know, really let them have the consequences sometimes of it not working because often kids will use us as coping strategies in mm-hmm. lieu of anything else. And so mm-hmm. if we're staying there and working it through with them and they're exploding all over us and we're still kind of coddling, they're not learning on their own. And so to back up, let them have the consequences and then reinforce the positive coping strategies, I think is so important. Well, and I can see for a child, it's easier to just sit and worry, or it's easier to do some other behavior than it is to remember, oh, I need to do the square breathing, or I need to do five, four, three, two, one, or something like that. If they're in a classroom context, are there reminders of any kind? Like, I don't know if it's something like a sticky on their desk or something like that, that we can help them re-engage to remember those coping skills. Yes. I mean, I think a sticky on their desk, you could give your child a bracelet that you have. I always think it's cool for you to have one and they have one and you write something on the inside of it. I mean, even if it's a boy, you could do one of those rubber bracelets and write, like draw a picture of a monster on the inside so that they remember that's their worry monster. Mm. I also have kids who have created calm down kits for schools in a pencil pouch Mm. where they put a stress ball and they put some fidget toys and You know, they put a little journal with a feelings chart on it where they can write down for a second if something gets overwhelming for them. You know, I think, and I have a lot of kids, it's harder in the warmer months, but in the winter who will put some things in their jacket pockets that they Mm -hmm. can use to squeeze or do things like that. But I think we can equip them with ways. And, And anytime we're coming up with a list of kids that are coping strategies or options for them when they get anxious... We don't, again, we don't want to come up with it for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fascinating when you ask kids what they think will help. They are so brilliant in the mm-hmm. things that they can come up with. So I think it could be a great idea to sit down and come up with the list together. I love that idea. And I think it's great because it attune, it allows them to attune into themselves. What works for me? Yes. And that just is so empowering to say, 
actually, I don't like that coping tool. I'm going to use this one. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's fantastic. So see, yeah. you've given us so many very practical ways that we can start tackling this with our kids. As I wrap up the conversation, I ask every guest the same question. And it is, if there was just one more thing that you would want a single mom to know, what would it be? I think if there's one thing I would want to say to single moms, and I think particularly single moms, because of you having gone through something hard, like you talked about, I mean, the the grief and the loss of that can sometimes disconnect you even more from your own heart and your own gut. And I think, gosh, if there's anything I would want moms to know, it's that I believe God has not only given you everything you need, but one of your greatest gifts is your intuition. And so I just feel like to trust your gut with your kids. I mean, I hope people like me are helpful and we know a lot, but you know more. As a mom, you know your kids like nobody else does. And so I think, I mean, as a therapist, I pray all the time that my gut is in line with the Holy Spirit and Mm -hmm. that it's being prompted. And so praying those kind of prayers, but then trusting that you've got, that that voice inside of you is gold and can really direct you to what your kids need and what to do next and what you need too. Thank you for that, Sissy. I think sometimes we, as you said, we get disconnected from this thing and we distrust ourselves. And that is one of the ways that God can alert us to things that he wants us to focus on. Mm -hmm. Sissy, tell listeners about your resources and how they can follow along with you. We have a website. It's I do a lot of work with David Thomas and then and then our, our boss and dear friend, Melissa Trevathan. And we have a website called RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. And everything we do is on there. But also, we're David and I are both pretty active at Raising Boys and Girls on Instagram. And then I am on my own Instagram account, especially. And this August, I'm going to try and make my own. It's not really Anxiety Awareness Month, but I'm going to make my own just because I just, I feel not anxious, but I feel concerned for so many kids who are going back to school and haven't Mm -hmm. been in a school environment, we run a little Daystar summer retreat program that I'm the director of. And I've been there for five weeks already this summer and sitting with kids every day right now, I can see a lot of evidence of kids not being as connected and, and the anxiety that's coming up. So I just feel like I'm trying to do as much as I can to equip parents, to equip kids moving into this season. So those are the best places. Oh, and we have a podcast ourselves called Raising Boys and Girls too, that can hopefully be helpful along the way. Yes, which is fantastic. And I will have links to all of those in the show notes to make it easier for listeners to find you. But thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you. It's so fun to get to talk to you. Just a couple of episodes back, I was joined by Sissy's counterpart at Daystar, David Thomas, and we had a conversation about raising boys that you might have interest in. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might also like episode 79, Are You Really Okay? How Getting Honest With Yourself Unlocks Hope and Wholeness with Deborah Faleda. Also check out episode 65, What Your Anxiety Is Trying To Tell You with Dr. John Deloney. As we wrap up the conversation, I'd like to draw your attention to a couple of resources available for you in the show notes. The first is our guided scripture meditation that goes along with each and every episode that you can find at the Agape Moms YouTube channel. Also, there's a link there to follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Agape Moms and to join the private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Lastly, if you'd like to spend some time reflecting in prayer on what you've learned in this episode, check out the link for our free podcast pages, journaling pages.
Thanks for spending time with me today. I'm praying for you and that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.